Chapter Seven of the Dashay Diamonds. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Dashay Diamonds by Richard Marsh. Chapter Seven. The Dashay Diamonds are placed in safe custody. When the morning came and Mr. Paxton found himself being cross-examined by the manager, with every probability of his later on having to undergo an examination by the police, he was as taciturn as possible. Although he was by no means sorry that he had fired that shot, and so effectually frightened the man upon the ladder, he would infinitely rather that less fuss had been made about it afterwards. One thing Mr. Paxton had decided to do before he left his bedroom. He had decided to remove the Dashay diamonds to a place of safety. That Mr. Lawrence and his friends had a very shrewd notion that they were in his possession was plain. That they were disposed to stick at nothing which would enable them to get hold of them again was, if possible, plainer. Mr. Paxton was resolute that they should not have them, whoever did. It happened that in his more prosperous days he had rented one of the Chancery Lane Deposit Company's safes, nor was the term of his tenancy at an end. He determined to do a bold, and one might add, an impudent thing. He would carry the Duchess's diamonds back with him to town, lock them in the safe he rented, and then, whatever might happen, nobody but himself would ever be able to have access to them again. He had the Gladstone bag brought up to his bedroom, removed from it the precious parcel, returned the bag itself to the manager's keeping, and, declining to have his morning meal at the hotel, went up by the Pullman train to town and breakfasted on board. He flattered himself that whoever succeeded in taking from him the diamonds before his arrival with them in Chancery Lane would have to be a very clever person. Still, he did not manage to reach his journey's end without having had one or two little adventures by the way. He drove up from the hotel to the station in a hansom cab. As he stepped into the cab, he noticed, standing on the curbstone a little to the left of the hotel entrance, a man who wore his billycock a good deal on the side of his head, and who had a cigar sticking out of the corner of his mouth. He should not have particularly observed the fellow, had not the man, as soon as he found Mr. Paxton's eyes turned in his direction, performed a right-about face on his heels, and presented an almost ostentatious view of the middle of the back. When Mr. Paxton's cab rattled into the central yard, and Mr. Paxton proceeded to step out from it onto the pavement, another hansom came dashing up behind his own, and from it there alighted the man who had turned his back on him in front of the hotel. As Mr. Paxton took his ticket, this man was at his side and having purchased his morning paper as he strolled up the platform towards the train, he noticed that the fellow was only a few steps in his rear. There seemed to be no reasonable room for doubt that the man was acting as his shadow. No one likes to feel that he is under espionage, and Mr. Paxton in particular felt that just recently he had endured enough of that kind of thing to last, if his own tastes were to be consulted, for the remainder of his life. He decided to put a stop there and then to, at any rate, this man's persecution. Suddenly standing still, wheeling sharply round, Mr. Paxton found himself face to face with the individual with his hat on the side of his head. "'Are you following me?' Mr. Paxton's manner as he asked the question, though polite, meant mischief. The other seemed to be a little taken aback. 
Then, with an impudent air, taking what was left of his cigar out of his mouth, he blew a volume of smoke full into Mr. Paxton's eyes. "'Were you speaking to me?' Mr. Paxton's fingers itched to knock the smoker down, but, situated as he was, a row in public just then would have been sheer madness. He adopted what was probably an even more effective plan. He signaled to a passing official. "'Guard!' the man approached. "'This person has been following me from my hotel. Be so good as to call a constable. His proceedings require explanation.' The man began to bluster. "'What do you mean by saying I've been following you? Who are you, I should like to know?' "'Can't anyone move about except yourself? "'Following you, indeed. "'It's more likely that you've been following me.' "'A constable came up. "'Mr. Paxton addressed him in his cool, incisive tones. "'Officer, this person has followed me from my hotel to the station, "'from the station to the booking office, "'from the booking office to the bookstall, "'and now he is following me from the bookstall to the train.' I have some valuable property on me with which fact he is possibly acquainted. Since he is a complete stranger to me, I should be obliged if you would ask him what is the cause of the unusual interest which he appears to take in my movements. The man with the cigar became apologetic. The gentleman's quite mistaken. I'm not following him. I wouldn't do such a thing. I'm going to town by this train, and it seems that this gentleman's going too, and perhaps that's what's made him think that I was following. If there's any offence, I'm sure that I beg pardon. The man held out his hand. It was unclean, and it was big, as if expecting Mr. Paxton to grasp it. Mr. Paxton, however, moved away, addressing a final observation to the constable as he went. "'Officer, be so good as to keep an eye upon that man.' Mr. Paxton entered the breakfast carriage. What became of the too attentive stranger he neither stopped to see nor cared to inquire. He saw no more of him. That was all he wanted. As the train rushed towards town, he ate his breakfast and he read his paper." The chief topic of interest in the journals of the day was the robbery on the previous afternoon of the Duchess of Dachet's diamonds. It filled them to the almost complete exclusion of other news of topical importance. There were illustrations of some of the principal jewels which had been stolen, together with anecdotes touching on their history. Very curious some of them were. The Dukes of Dachet seemed to have gathered these beautiful gems, if not in ways which were dark, then occasionally, at any rate, in ways which were, to say the least of it, peculiar. Those glittering pebbles seemed to have been mixed up with a good deal of trickery and fraud and crime. The papers gave the most minute description of the more important stones. Even the merest novice in the knowledge of brilliance, if he had mastered those details, could scarcely fail to recognize them if ever they came his way it appeared that few even royal collections possessed so large a number of really fine examples their valuation at a quarter of a million was the purest guesswork the present duke would not have accepted for them twice that sum half a million five hundred thousand pounds at even three per cent and who does not want more for his money than a miserable three per cent that was fifteen thousand pounds a year three thousand pounds a week more than forty pounds a day over three pounds for every working hour and mr paxton had it in his pockets 
It was not strange that Mr. Lawrence and his associates should betray such lively anxiety to regain possession of such a sum as that. It would have been strange if they had not. It was a sum worth having, worth fighting for, worth risking something for as well. And yet there was something, indeed there was a good deal, which could be said for the other side of the question. Mr. Paxton owned to himself that there was. He could not honestly, if it were still possible to speak of honesty in connection with a gentleman who had launched himself on such a venture, lay his hand upon his heart and say that he was happier since he had discovered what were the contents of somebody else's Gladstone bag. On the contrary, if he could have blotted out of his life the few hours which had intervened since the afternoon of the previous day, he would have done so, even yet, with a willing hand nor was his feeling lessened by an incident which took place on his arrival at london bridge if he were of an adventurous turn of mind evidently he could not have adopted a more certain means of gratifying his peculiar taste than by retaining possession of the duchess's diamonds adventures were being heaped on him galore as he was walking down the platform looking for a likely cab Someone came rushing up against him from behind with such violence as to send him flying forward on his face. Two roughly dressed men assisted him to arise, but while undergoing their kindly ministrations it occurred to him, in spite of his half-dazed condition, that they were evincing a livelier interest in the contents of his pockets than in his regaining his perpendicular. He managed to shake them off, however, before their interest had been carried to too generous a length. The inevitable crowd had gathered. A man, attired as a countryman, was volubly explaining, with a volubility which was hardly suggestive of a yokel, that he was late for market and was hurrying along without looking where he was going, when he stumbled against the gentleman and was so unfortunate as to knock him over. He was profuse, and indeed almost lachrymose, in his apologies for the accident which his clumsiness had occasioned. Mr. Paxton said nothing. He did not see what there was to say. He dusted himself down, adjusted his hat, got into a cab, and drove away. Drove straight away to Chancery Lane, and when he had deposited the Duchess of Dashay's diamonds in his safe, and had left them behind him in that impregnable fortress, where, if the statements of the directors could be believed, fire could not penetrate, nor water, nor rust, nor thieves break through and steal, he felt as if a load had been lifted off his mind. End of chapter 7